I'll tell you why I can't find you. Every time I go out to your place, you gone fishing. Oh, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. <laughs> you ain't working anymore. It could be. There's your hole out in the sun where you left a row half done. You claim that hoeing uh, ain't no fun. But I can prove it. You ain't got no ambition. Gone fishing. Hello, everyone, and welcome Buy to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week, I'm reviewing one of the books I couldn't wait to get back to rereading, one that I've read at least three times, and a novel that I believe is the last great Dark Tower novel. It's King's second collaboration with fellow novelist Peter Straub, the sequel to the much-loved novel The Talisman, in which we pick up with our once-child adventurer Jack Sawyer, now a police officer brought back into the world of the supernatural to not just save one life, but the entire multiverse by stopping the right-hand man of Stephen King's number one bad guy, the Crimson King, a child-eating monster with a talking crow as a sidekick. A tale of heroism, the return of magic, of monsters, children, and other worlds than these. The greatly anticipated and very underrated Black House. So this is a novel that is 100% not for the casual Stephen King fan. This novel is for the uber fan, who has to not only have read The Talisman, but also the Dark Tower series. So not only does it alienate the average reader who didn't read the original novel, to which this is a sequel, but also the reader who did pick it up because it's the sequel to The Talisman, but never read those weird Dark Tower books. And everything that occurs in this book occurs because of the machinations of a villain from that other weird book, Insomnia. So yeah, I can understand that there are reasons why people might not like it, but those reasons certainly don't apply to me. The reasons that are off-putting to some are the exact reasons why I love this book as much as I do. Yeah, it makes me giddy that King and Straub finally released the sequel to The Talisman, but the fact that they both decided, and I believe urged on by Straub, to incorporate it into the larger Dark Tower mythos stoked the already burning embers into a bonfire. And as someone who loves not just King's introspective work, fantasy work, science fiction work, thriller work, supernatural work, but also his horror works, this novel goes to some truly frightening places with a bona fide monster as its villain. Mr. Munchen, aka Lord Malshin, is one of the last great Stephen King villains, a thoroughly terrifying and evil creature with no semblance of humanity that plays upon the frightening elements in both the real world and classic fairy tales. He's the monster in the woods that snatches children from the path. He's the boogeyman prowling our streets, abducting our young. From here on out, King will give us villains like Mordred and Rose the Hat. But for these characters, they're not meant to be inherently evil. These characters are given pathos. Lord Malshin, however, is a straight-up monster. The thing in the closet that had terrified Tad Trenton so badly. The thing with no name that lurked in the sewers of Derry, Maine. Malshin is a classic Stephen King villain. And one that nobody talks about. Because nobody talks about this book, which is ridiculous. I mean, 
It's about a cop and bikers fighting a serial killer possessed by the malevolent spirit of an extra-dimensional entity who pals around with a talking crow. Now, that's pretty awesome, if you ask me. For me, this novel was a breath of fresh air, because with the help of his good friend Peter Straub, it marked King's return to the horror genre. It showed, despite the near-death experience that had occurred a few years prior, that King still had it. And it was so vivid, so imaginative, so thrilling, so frightening and magical that it was exactly what I needed at the time uh, to wash the taste out of my mouth from his previous publication, Dreamcatcher, which, upon reread, is a little bit better than I had remembered it being. So let's join Jack Sawyer and once more step into the world of the territories. But first, let me read the Wikipedia summary so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my foundation. Nope. So I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Okay, guys. Uh, nope. Let me read an email first. I just, uh, I really fell apart there for a second. Okay, uh, so I'm going to read an email to everyone. So uh, um, Shane writes, Hi, I wanted to send you a note of encouragement and praise. Um... I started listening at work and have just finished episode 12, Firestarter. I voraciously consume hours of audio media a day at work, so I hope to catch up to the present in a couple of months. I have read quite a few of Stephen King's works. My first introduction to him was, unbeknownst to me, through movie adaptations. Like you, the first book that I read was It. What drew me to your podcast is that is that I have just finished book six of the Dark Tower series. As you know, there is a compulsion to go back through Stephen King's books to find all of the connections. I find myself pressed for reading time for these days. I will admit that I am more likely to move ahead into new territory than go back and revisit the old. There are too many books and not enough time. So while I find myself reading books I have yet to touch on, like the amazing book The Martian, I am loving having someone in my ear telling me about all the little things that I might have missed. I just bought a copy of the seventh installment of The Dark Tower. I'm excited to finish that journey with a much richer knowledge of the Stephen King canon. Also, I will be reading some of the Stephen King books that I have missed. I have a mind full of needful things. Thanks again, Shane. Shane, thank you for um, listening, and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to put out the um, reviews of Wolves of the Collins, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower so that uh, they're out there for you to, when, when you finish up. And uh, always, as always, feel free to, uh, to write back in on, on any more thoughts that you have. Okay, guys, if you haven't done so already, feel free to head on over to uh, uh, write over to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com to share in your thoughts. Or if you haven't done so already, um, leave a review uh, on iTunes because that would really, really help me out. So with all of that out of the way, I'm going to get back into the Black House, back into the territories to hang out once again with Jack Sawyer. And I'm going to, let's see if I can get it right this time, I'm going to read the Wiccan the I am going to read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. I did it. I did it. It's only 100 episodes or so, but I finally got it right. Okay, Wikipedia. A series of murders that has begun to plague the town of French Landing, Wisconsin. The murderer is dubbed the Fisherman. 
due to a conscious effort by the killer to emulate the methods of serial killer Albert Fish. Like Fish, French Landing's killer targets children and indulges in cannibalism of the bodies. Two victims have already been discovered as the story opens, with a third awaiting discovery. The nature of the crimes and the local police's inability to capture the killer have led to people all over the region to become more anxious with each passing day, and certain elements of the local media exacerbate the situation with inflammatory and provocative coverage. After the events of the Talisman, Jack Sawyer has repressed the memories of his adventures in the territories and his hunt for the talisman as a 12-year-old boy, though the residue of these events has served to subtly affect his life even after he has forgotten them. Jack grew up to become a lieutenant in the Los Angeles Police Department, where his professionalism and uncanny talent have helped him to establish a nearly legendary reputation. When a series of murders in Los Angeles are traced to a farm insurance salesman from French Landing, Wisconsin, Jack cooperates with the French Landing police to capture the killer. While in Wisconsin, Jack is irresistibly enraptured by the natural beauty of the Cooley County, or is it Cooley Country, echoing his reaction to the territories as a child. When he later intrudes upon a homicide investigation in Santa Monica, certain aspects of the crime scene threaten to revive his repressed memories. He subsequently resigns from the LAPD, and he moves to French Landing to enjoy his early retirement. When the fisherman begins to terrorize French Landing, the police all but beg Hollywood Jack Sawyer for his assistance, and are surprised when he flatly refuses. Memories of the Santa Monica event threaten to overwhelm Jack, and he fears that involving himself in the investigation may break his sanity. When a fourth child is taken by the fisherman, events no longer allow Jack to remain aloof. It quickly becomes apparent to him that the fisherman is much more than a serial killer. In fact, he is an agent of the Crimson King, and his task is to find children with the potential to serve as breakers. The fourth victim, Tyler Marshall, is one of the most powerful breakers there has ever been, and he may be all the Crimson King needs to break the remaining beams of the Dark Tower and bring an end to all worlds. As the fisherman also proves capable the fisherman also proves capable of flipping into the territories, Jack Sawyer is the only hope of not just French landing, but all of existence. Analysis, part one. Welcome to Cooley Country. So guys, I just have to share with you the opening paragraph of this novel, which is just written oh, so well. Right here and now, as an old friend used to say, we are in the fluid present, where the clear-sightedness never guarantees perfect vision. Here, about 200 feet, the height of a gliding eagle, above Wisconsin's far western edge, where the vagaries of the Mississippi River declare a natural border, now an early morning Friday in mid-July, a few years into both a new century and a new millennium. Their wayward course is so hidden that a blind man has a better chance of seeing what lies ahead than you or I. Right here and now, the hour is just past 6 a.m., and the sand and the sun stands low in the cloudless eastern sky, a fat, confident yellow-white ball advancing as ever for the first time toward the future and leaving in its wake the steadily accumulating past, which darkens as it recedes, making blind men of us all. If it didn't incorporate right here and now, 
then this could function as an introduction to any text. But the phrase, right here and now, is a callback to the talisman. So it's a goosebump-inducing inclusion that confirms within the first four lines of the novel that, yes, we have returned to the life of Jack Sawyer. The introduction is a breezy, scenic exploration of the town that will serve as our setting. And on the second page, we glimpse the Thunder Five, the English and philosophy majors who now serve as a biker gang and a sign about the fishermen. Immediately, the reader wants to know who these men are and why wouldn't the reader? They all work in a brewing company. They all have liberal arts degrees. And yes, they dress like Hell's Angels. It makes for an incredibly fun visual. And with the sign hanging on the telephone pole in regards to the fishermen, it's clever, as King and Straub are the real fishermen here, having just hooked the reader upon their line. The narrators sweep us up and down the streets of French Landing so that we have a grasp of the town we'll be staying in for the duration of the novel. And we meet Bobby Dulac, a police officer of French Landing. Bobby grabs the morning newspaper and brings it inside. The conversation the cops have over the newspaper frame the conflict of the novel. A murderer named the Fisherman has claimed the lives of two children and has potentially abducted a third. Tensions are rising throughout French Landing. Vigilantism has begun to crumb up. And through it all, the two police officers, Bobby and Tom Lund, keep referencing someone by the name of Hollywood, who we will later find out is the talisman's hero, Jack Sawyer, all grown up. The narrators then sweep us into an elder care facility, introduce us to the director and his secretary, both engaged in an affair with one another, then through the halls, making note that we are here to see Mr. Charles Burnside, a current Alzheimer's patient who has arrived at the elder care facility years before under mysterious circumstances. However, Burnsy would mutter what appears to be nonsense words that consist of Abala, Gorg, and Munchen. Even if the reader doesn't know what these words are, they do convey a certain menace. And knowing what we know upon a second read, thinking that this Alzheimer's patient is reciting the names of Endworld's monsters is horrifying. We're just about 20 pages in, and though the novel doesn't kick off with a bang, it does create a sense of dread. If this were a movie, I could almost hear a heavy droning, almost like a heartbeat pouring out of the speakers as King and Straub describe the woods at the edge um, of the grounds, the woods that Bernsey is looking at. Beneath its green canopy, time and serenity embrace bloodshed and death. Violence roils on the unseen, constantly absorbed into every aspect of a hushed landscape that never pauses but moves with glacial lack of haste. The spangled, yielding floor covers millions of scattered bones in layer upon layer. All that grows and thrive here thrives on rot. World within worlds churn, and a great systemic universe hum side by side, each ignorantly bringing abundance and catastrophe upon its unguessed-at neighbors. The narrators escort us away from the elder care facility to a path that cuts through the forest, as King and Straub invoke 
fairy tales of dragons and dwarves, harkening back to the talisman's roots and playing upon the fairy tale quality of children being lost from the path and encountering the witches and goblins who will eat them up. It's here where they present us to the titular black house itself, which pulses in the woods like a diseased heart. And they describe on, beginning on page 28. Having noticed the sign, we look again at the end of the lane. In the darkness under the trees down there, one area seems murkier than the rest. Even as it shrinks back into the gloom, this area possesses an unnatural solidity that distinguishes it from the surrounding trees. Aha, oho, we say to ourselves in an echo of Bernie's gibberish. What have we here, a wall of some kind? It seems that featureless. When we reach the midpoint in the curve of the lane, a triangular section of darkness, all but obscured by the treetops, abruptly defines itself as a peaked roof. Not until we are nearly upon it does the entire structure move into definition as a three-story wooden house, oddly shambling in structure with a sagging front porch. This house has clearly stood empty for a long time, and after taking in its eccentricity, the first thing we noticed is its inhospitality to new tenants. A second no-trespassing sign leaning sideways at an improbable angle against a newel post merely underlines the impression given by the building itself. The peaked roof covers only the natural section. To the left, a two-story extension retreats back into the woods. On the right, the building sprouts additions like outsized sheds, more like growths than afterthoughts. In both senses of the word, the building looks unbalanced, an off-kilter mind conceived it, then relentlessly brought it into off-center being. The intractable result deflects inquiry and resists interpretation. An odd, monolithic invulnerability emanates from the bricks and boards, despite the damage done by time and weather. Obviously built in search of seclusion, if not isolation, the house seems to still demand them. Oddest of all, from our vantage point, the house appears to have been painted a uniform black. Not only the boards, but every inch of the exterior, the porch, the trim, the rain gutters, even the windows. Black from top to bottom. And that cannot be possible. In this guileless, good-hearted corner of the world, not even the most crazily misanthropic builder would turn his house into its own shadow. We float down to just above ground level and move nearer along the narrow lane. When we come close enough for reliable judgment, which is uncomfortably close, we find that misanthropy can go further than we had supposed. The house is not black now, but it used to be. What it has faded into makes us feel that we might have been too critical about the original color. The house has become the leaden gray black of thunderheads and dismal seas and the hulls of wrecked ships. Black would be preferable to this utter lifelessness. I mean, do I really have to tell you that it's an incredible description? And again, though there hasn't been any action yet, our authors are setting up the pieces in such well-described ways that make the novel impossible to put down. King and Strauss, 
I'm sorry, King and Straub, our narrators, describe the concept of slippage along the borderlands. And when you have two worlds bumping up against each other, there will be moments of slippage where one world pokes through the other. It's where the fabric of reality is thin, the concept that King had explored most recently in the pages of Wizard in Glass with the Thinny. The narrators push in on an abandoned short-order grill in whose ruins lie the body of a child, the fisherman's third victim, Irma Freenu. The narrators introduce us to Fred Marshall, whose thoughts we are privy to as he goes for his morning jog, and we realize that his wife, Judy, might have the ability to flip between worlds. We're about 40 pages into the book, and with only a throwaway line or two from the talisman, there hasn't been much to connect the two novels. Combined with the heavy narration, which couldn't be any more different from the approach of the original book, this could have easily put off fans who have just come back from more Adventures of the Territories and walked away disappointed. But when Fred thinks about how strangely his wife has been acting, and how he'd followed her into the kitchen the other day only to discover that she wasn't there and somehow managed to come down the stairs behind him, it's clear that more familiar elements are beginning to appear. When we check in with Judy properly, we see that her husband has every right to be concerned. And when I read this for the first time, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I had purchased the book thinking that it was going to be a sequel to The Talisman. I had no idea it was going to tie into Stephen King's Dark Tower series. I had hoped that every novel would tie into the series, but with Black House, because it was being written or co-written by an author who didn't have ties to the Dark Tower, I had left those particular hopes at the door, which is why I was so excited when Judy starts rambling about the red eye of the Crimson King and the Breakers and the Tower, all terms that casual Stephen King fans will not understand, but die-hard Dark Tower junkies will flip out over. Eye of the King, she repeats, and now it starts with the hands, kneading and twisting and squeezing and digging. Abala, foxes down foxholes. Abala Dune, the Crimson King, rats in their rat holes. Abala Munchen, the king is in his tower eating bread and honey. The breakers in the basement making all the money. She shakes her head from side to side. Oh, those voices, out of the darkness they come. And sometimes she awakens with a vision burning behind her eyes, a vision of a vast slaty tower standing in a field of roses, a field of blood. Her tongue yawns out and licks across the tip of her nose. For a moment, her nostrils are plugged with her own spit. And her head roars, Abala, Abala Dun, Kanta Abala, with those foreign, terrible words, those terrible, impacted images of the tower and the burning caves beneath, caves through which little ones trudge on bleeding feet. I mean, less than 50 pages in, the authors confirm that this is definitely a Dark Tower novel, and not just one that incorporates the Crimson King the concept of the breakers recently introduced to in Hearts in Atlantis. And with the phrase Kanta, they're also incorporating elements from desperation and the regulators, specifically the language of the dead that has been spoken by Tak, the Kantak, or the big god of desperation. The narrators drift into her son Tyler's room, and the narrators undramatically reveal that this child will soon be the fisherman's fourth victim. 
Before we can dwell on this too long, we meet Chief Gilbertson, who is concerned about the well-being of his town, the safety of its children. We learn that he isn't incompetent, as he's asked for help from the FBI and the state police who, as the authors point out, Stephen King, I'm sure, with their names being Brown, Black, and Redding, they're referred to as the Color Posse. And then on page 65, we get our first mention of Jack. We'd heard Hollywood before, but not the birth name, not the name of the boy with whom we'd traveled to other worlds than this. And through the perspective of Chief Gilbertson, our narrators reintroduce us to our hero, or rather, introduce us to him again for the first time, as he is essentially a brand new character. When we last left off, he was a boy, and this Jack is a man, so it's important for King and Straub to stretch out his defining characteristics. He's an ex-cop. He's the best detective Gilbertson has ever seen. He listens. He's gracious. And then King and Straub realize that almost... After 70 pages, it's time to meet Jack Sawyer. Again, like I said, for the first time. And what a moment it is, guys. Our hearts groan for a hero. And while we might not find one, we can perhaps find a man who was a hero once upon a time. Let us therefore search out an old friend when we last glimpse a thousand and more miles east of here on the shore of the steady Atlantic. Years have passed, and they have in some ways lessened the boy who was. He has forgotten much and has spent a good part of his adult life maintaining that state of amnesia. But he is French Landing's only hope, so let us take wing and fly almost due east back over the woods and fields and gentle hills. Here we will find our former traveling companion, who in his own boyhood knew a boy named Richard Sloat, and, once, too briefly, knew yet another whose name was simply Wolf. In this sturdy, comely, removed white farmhouse, we will find our old friend who once in his boyhood journeyed cross-country from ocean to ocean in pursuit of a certain crucial thing, a necessary object, a great talisman, and who, despite horrendous obstacles and fearful perils, succeeded in finding the object of his search and used it wisely and well. Who, we could say, accomplished a number of miracles heroically, and who remembers none of this? Here, making breakfast for himself in his kitchen while listening to George Rathbun on KDCU, we last find the former Los Angeles County Lieutenant of Police, homicide detective, Jack Sawyer. Our Jack. Jackie boy, as his mother, the late Lily Cavanaugh Sawyer, used to say. As we are reintroduced to the hero of our previous book, we are teased with the fate of one of the more beloved characters from it, namely Speedy Parker. When Jack thinks about leaving the homicide life in L.A., the narrators reveal the lights of a carousel reflected on the bald head of a black man lying dead on the Santa Monica Pier. Was Speedy murdered 
Did this cause Jack to give up life as a cop? Here's a hook to keep us reading. We get a vivid flashback to his days in California where he came upon a crime scene at the Santa Monica Pier and his subconscious, or his true self that he's been suppressing since his childhood, threatens to come to the forefront. Is it any surprise that King and Straub represent this side of Jack, the spirit of traveling Jack, as a bird that is trying to break free? In the present, as Jack comes to terms with turning down Chief Gilbertson's request for help, despite knowing he's putting his friend in a tough situation by doing so, he starts seeing red feathers and blue robin eggs. Bird imagery has flown into his life. And what is Jack other than a phoenix rising from the ashes? Part 2. The Taking of Tyler Marshall As the chapter suggests, the tension isn't going to come from knowing whether or not Tyler is going to be taken, but how and when it's going to happen. King and Straub intercut scenes between the elder home and Ty riding on his bike, and we meet Bernsey again, who is described as a wolf foaming now that he's spotted his prey. Though they aren't close in proximity, he's still seen his next victim in the mirror of the old folks' home. And then things get super creepy. Without us knowing what the word means, Bernsey says, Gorg, come Gorg. We don't know who or what a Gorg is. What's a wonderfully Dickensian name, fitting as both King and Straub play tribute to Charles Dickens throughout the novel. I'm telling you everyone, these guys know how to build a moment. When Gorg, revealed to be a talking crow, introduces itself to Ty, it lures him closer to the hedges, and the authors write, Ty takes another step toward his doom, and all the worlds tremble. Burnsy uses an incantation to teleport to the bushes, where he drags Ty and pulls him from this world. Judy has a vision of this, which causes an inhuman scream to rip through the neighborhood. A neighbor calls Fred, who returns to the house to find it a shambles because Judy has torn down every picture in the house because she believes that Ty is behind one of them. The image of the bloodied Judy and the broken pictures is great. It's a creepy scene, not because we expect a boogeyman to jump out and get us, because, but because of the fear of insanity. The authors handle Fred's slow realization that his son has been taken extremely well. He denies the possibility itself, eventually relenting by calling the police, and when the dispatcher asks him if Tyler owns a Schwinn, the question itself is actually a statement, a declaration of a parent's worst nightmare, that their child has been taken. The authors give us an extended sequence at the elder care facility, which drags on a little too long, but shows off Henry's magical musical talents and the foulness of Charles Burnside, as seen on page 163. Moving by increments, the old man turns around. First, one foot shifts, then a knee, then the waist, the second foot, finally the cadaverous trunk. The ugly bloom of Bernsey's head droops on its thin stalk, offering Rebecca a view of his mottled scalp. His long nose protrudes like a warped rudder. With the same dreadful slowness, his head lifts to reveal muddy eyes and a slack mouth. A flash of sheer vindictiveness rises into the dull eyes, and the dead lips writhe. 
Frightened, Rebecca takes an instinctive step backward. Bernie's mouth has moved all the way into a horrible grin. Rebecca wants to escape, but anger at having been humiliated by this miserable jerk lets her hold her ground. Lady McGowan had a bad, bad nightmare, Bernie informs her. He sounds drugged or half asleep. And Lady Sophie had a nightmare. Only hers is worse. He giggles. The king was in his counting house, counting out his honeys. That's what Sophie saw when she fell asleep. His giggling rises in pitch, and he says something that might be Mr. Munching. His lips flap, revealing yellow, irregular teeth, and his sunken face undergoes a subtle change. A new kind of intelligence seems to sharpen his features. Do you know Mr. Munchen? Mr. Munchen and his little friend Gorg? Does you know what happened in Chicago? And after this, Jack is finally moved to action. He can't resist the pleas from his friends to step up and help save the day, despite the fact that there's a part of him that fears he might be losing his mind over the robin's eggs he keeps seeing everywhere. Jack relents and heads to the police station to meet Fred Marshall, which represents an interesting relationship between the two men. I'll talk about twinners later in the episode, but for now, let's just look at Fred and Jack. Both men are linked in a few ways that present them as quasi-twinners. And, and though it's a bit of a stretch, both men are linked through the syllabic, I'm sorry, um, the, 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 the sibyl, um, syllabic, right? Is that how you pronounce it? So basically the, the similarity of the syllables of the cadence of their first and last names. Um, and the names themselves are opposites of each other. Jack is a hero's name and Sawyer invokes wandering nature. Whereas Fred suggests an everyman quality, though Marshall connotes a sense of law, which again links the family men, the family man to the former police detectives. And furthermore, Fred's life is an antithesis and hopeful wish of Jack's own. Jack, the lonely wanderer, who having finally settled down, finds himself lured back to adventure while Fred Marshall has both feet firmly planted in the everyday a man of routines whose most adventurous activity is a morning run. And we get a little bit of this um, on page 172. Jack Sawyer, at whom both of the other men in the room are staring, takes time to adjust to the three thoughts he now thinks he thinks. The first is not so much a thought as a response that embodies a hidden thought. From the moment Fred Marshall clutched his hand and said, Boy, oh boy, Jack found himself liking the man, an unanticipated turn in the evening's plot. Fred Marshall strikes him as something like the poster boy for small-town life. If you put his picture on billboards advertising French country real estate, you could sell a lot of second homes to people in Milwaukee and Chicago. Marshall's friendly, good-looking face and slender runner's body are as good as testimonials to responsibility, decency, good manners, and good neighborliness, modesty, and a generous heart. The more Fred Marshall accuses himself of selfishness and stupidity, the more Jack likes him. And the more he likes him, the more he sympathizes with his terrible plight, the more he wishes to help the man. Jack had come to the station expecting that he would respond to Dale's friend like a policeman, but his cop reflexes have rusted from disuse. He is responding like a fellow citizen. But the thing that links both men together truly is Judy. 
whose twinner Sophie is destined to be Jack's love. So of course Jack is going to come to the rescue. By agreeing to save Tyler Marshall, he's not just saving a young boy, he's saving a symbolic son, just as he had saved the symbolic mother in the territories as a youth, Laura de la Ressian. Jack's interrogation of the children who had witnessed Tyler's disappearance reveals his instant authority, a command of a situation in the time of crisis, and an ability to communicate with children, all important qualities in order to comfort a reader who might be upset that they feel they don't know Jack anymore as he's aged drastically since we last met him. When Jack has his prophetic dream of once again being on the Atlantic coast, we are introduced at almost 200 pages in to Speedy Parker himself. On page 191, let me see if I can find it. No, Jackie whispers, and then the midway ends. Ahead is the carousel, sort of like the one on the Santa Monica Pier, and sort of like the one he remembers from, well, from a go. It is a hybrid, in other words, a dream specialty, neither here nor there. But there's no mistaking the man who sits beneath one of the frozen rearing horses with a guitar on his knee. Jackie Boy would know that face anywhere, and all the old love rises in his heart. He fights it, but that is a fight few people win, especially not to those who have been turned back to the age of twelve. Speedy, he cries. The old man looks at him, and his brown face cracks open in a smile. Traveling, Jack, he said. How I have missed you, son. I missed you too, he says, but I don't travel anymore. I settled down in Wisconsin. This, he gestures as magically restored boy's body, clad in jeans and a t-shirt. This is just a dream. Maybe so, maybe not. In any case, you got a mite more traveling to do, Jack. I've been telling you that for some time. For those of us who had been afraid that we wouldn't see Speedy because of the suggestion that he's been murdered, this is a great scene. That also comes with King and Straub giving shout-outs to King's Dark Tower series, with Jack for the first time hearing about the threat of the Crimson King and his use of the Breakers. The dream also comes complete with a Charles Burnside cameo, whose eye appears as a spinning black hole reminiscent of Morgan Sloat's eye in The Talisman. He awakens, speaks to Fred Marshall, and assures the man he'll find both his son and his wife's mind, then discovering a shoebox full of feathers sent from the fishermen, the authors write, there is a sense of approaching climax growing in his mind. Something is getting ready to break, or change, or change back. King and Straub just know how to do it, guys. They, like I said, they know how to build a moment. They realize that this moment is is big and needs to feel big, legendary, momentous, and they deliver. It's when Jack's mental walls come crashing down and he forces himself to remember the adventure we'd read about in the pages of the Talisman so many years ago. As Jack runs through his fields, he's really running through his memory in a flashback to the time that we had spent in the territories. 
Narrow face, narrow eyes, under a tilted white paper cap. If you can run me out a keg when I need one, you can have the job. Smoky Updike from Oatley, New York, where they drank the beer and then ate the glass. Oatley, where there'd been something in the tunnel outside of a town and where Smokey had kept him prisoner until... Prying eyes, false smile, brilliant white suit. I met you before, Jack. Where? Tell me. Confess. Sunlight Gardener, an Indiana preacher whose name had also been Osmond. Osmond in some other world. The broad, hairy face and frightened eyes of a boy who wasn't a boy at all. This is a bad place, Jackie. Wolf knows. And it was. It was a very bad place. They put him in a box, put good old Wolf in a box, and finally they killed him. Wolf died of a disease called America. Wolf! The running man in the field gasps. Wolf, oh God, I'm sorry. Faces and voices, all those faces and voices, rising in front of his eyes, dinning into his ears, demanding to be seen and heard, filling him with that sense of climax, every defense on the verge of being washed away like a breakwater before a tidal wave. Nausea roars through him and tilts the world. He makes that irking sound again, and this time it fills the back of his throat with a taste he remembers, the taste of cheap, rough wine. And suddenly it's New Hampshire again, Arcadia Fun World again. He and Speedy are standing beside the carousel again, all those frozen horses. And Speedy is holding out a bottle of wine and telling him it's magic juice, one little sip and he'll go over, flip over. No, Jack cries, knowing it's already too late. I don't want to go over. The world tilts the other way and he falls onto the grass on his hands and knees with his eyes squeezed shut. He doesn't need to open them. The richer, deeper smells that suddenly fill his nose tell him everything he needs to know. That, and the sense of coming home after so many dark years, when almost every waking motion and decision has in some way been dedicated to canceling, or at least postponing, the arrival of this very moment. This is Jack Sawyer. Ladies and gentlemen, down on his knees, in a vast field of sweet grass under a morning sky untainted by a single particle of pollution. He is weeping. He knows what has happened, and he is weeping. His heart bursts with fear and joy. This is Jack Sawyer, 20 years along, grown to be a man, and back in the territories again at last. At 200 pages, we have flipped back over into the territories and oh my god, it's such a great feeling. I don't know if it registers in my voice right now, but it honestly as I was reading that, especially the wolf part, yeah, I mean, I I I was getting emotional and then at the very very end, I'm swept away. Jack, using the voice of Richard Sloat, tries to tell himself that he's imagining this. It's a nice way to include Richard without having to shoehorn him into the story because, after all, the way that they've constructed the novel, it wouldn't have made sense to include Richard, the actual Richard, into it. Richard's practicality isn't enough to dissuade Jack from the truth of the matter. At long last, he's back in the territories. We get a glimpse of a riverboat along the river which corresponds to the Mississippi. Wonderful kangaroo bunnies. 
and with far more sinister implications, smoke in the distance that carries a powerful vibration, which Jack believes is the thrum of the fisherman. And here in the territories, he finds Tyler's baseball cap. The fisherman has left Irma Frino's sneaker and a taunting note for Jack to find her body. And as Jack heads to discover it, the fisherman calls the French Landing Police Department to tell them the same thing. King and Straub fill this scene with tension, introducing us to one of the deputies, hinting that he's about to soon make a huge mistake, which is when he calls his wife to tell her about the phone call from the fisherman, which causes her to make a phone call, and so on. The discovery of Irma Freenu's body is a masterclass in suspense. Which it shouldn't be because we've already seen the body about 200 pages before. Yet King and Straub sell us on the setting, the rundown eatery, and the idea that this poor girl has been dumped in such a squalid place. It's just a truly horrifying image. And the scene, it just escalates wonderfully. With word on the street, the police at the end of the lane have to start to fight back more and more citizens who have come for a look. And then it's as if King and Straub turned to each other and nodded. Yeah, it was time. It was time, they realized, to unleash the Thunder Five on the readers. The Thunder Five, the college-graduated, ale-brewing biker gang, takes their first step into the narrative, and they dominate every scene they're in. You can tell that their creators love their creation. They appear to be an absolute joy to write, and their inclusion in the story functions as a wild card. They're educated, but their leader, Beezer, is also mourning as his daughter is one of the fishermen's victims. What role will they play? The scene, like I said, has no right to be this suspenseful, but it is. From the Thunder Five taking a back way to the crime scene, to the meddlesome reporter Wendell Green snapping photos that incriminate Jack, the reader just squirms, wondering what's going to happen next. Chaos ensues as Wendell Green manages to snap photos of Irma Frino, and the Gilbertson gets chewed out by the state police. Jack confronts Wendell Green, and after finding out he was going to sell pictures of Freno, Jack is overcome with rage and punches him in the gut. It's a moment that shows Jack's passion, which I'll discuss later in the podcast, and sets up his, his friendship with Beezer, who realizes that he has a true detective he can follow. It's a good scene, don't get me wrong, but from the moment the fisherman calls the French landing PD to the moment Jack sludge, slugs Wendell Green, it's 55 pages. And it's 55 pages of pretty small text. Um, I mean, the, the text itself is it's pretty tiny. So, I mean, it goes on. Uh, it's well-written and chaotic, yeah, but by the end, it was beginning to drag. And then the scene shifts immediately to Jack visiting Judy Marshall in the hospital. It's so sudden, it's almost clunky. This is a big moment, the meeting between Judy and Jack. She will be the first person he's ever met unattached to his initial adventure that has the ability to flip between worlds, or one that can at least sense the territories. King and Straub slip in their patented buildup of a moment. So even before Jack sees Judy Marshall's face, before she speaks a single word, there is about her this sense of leave-taking, of journeys begun and begun again. This suggestion of travel, this hint 
of a possible elsewhere. Their meeting fills Jack with immediate love. He thinks himself of a knight kneeling before his queen and is struck with how much he has fallen with her. They have a great conversation about the territories, or what Judy refers to as far away, a name that I happen to prefer over the territories. We learn that she used to dream that a girl her age would whisper to her through the wall, and she would dream of a world much different than our own. King and Straub have Jack flash to Jack's visit to the pavilion tent where Laura de Laresian had rested, and make note of the 12-year-old girl that had been with her. It's our first reveal of Sophie, the woman who Jack has really fallen in love with. Part 3. Night's Plutonian Shore Ooh, the beginning of this section of the novel is deliciously well-detailed. One of the characters point out why we should like it as much as we do, and it's because it's something out of a hammer picture. One by one, the authors check in with our characters throughout French Landing as the fog rolls off the Mississippi River and begins to blanket the small town. There's a terrifying moment when Dale Gilbertson believes that his son has been swallowed by the fishermen in the fog, but thankfully has not. But that doesn't mean that the town is as filled with dread as it is with fog. The narrators escort us from location to location, from a rundown hotel where Bernsey is getting revenge on an old colleague, to the mother of Irma Frino who is visited by Gorg the Talking Crow, unsurprisingly when she is thinking about Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. The authors demonstrate Gorg's powers of mesmerism when he beguiles Tansy with a wonderful description of how awful the crow is on page 313 of the hardcover text. The crow looks up at her with its bright black eyes. Its beak opens and closes, revealing a wet red interior in tiny peaks. Tansy, it croaks, come! The strength runs out of her legs, and she drops to her knees, biting her tongue and making it bleed. Crimson drops splatter her U of W sweatshirt. Now her face is on level with the bird's face. She can see one of its wings brushing up and down, sensuously, on the glass side of the coffee brandy bottle. The smell of gorg is dust and heaped dead flies and ancient urns of buried spice. Its eyes are shining black portholes looking into some other world. Hell, perhaps. Or Sheol. Who, she whispers. Gorg stretches its black and rustling neck until its black beak is actually in the cup of her ear. It begins to whisper, and eventually Tansy Frino begins to nod. The light of sanity has left her eyes. And when will it return? Oh, I think we all know the answer to that one. Can you say, nevermore? At this point, as the fog had completely blanketed the town, the narrators suggest that Bernie isn't the primary villain, but is the tool of a spirit that's been controlling him. The spirit, through Bernie, is using the town as a chess game and is masterfully arranging his pieces on the board setting up Potter, sending out Tansy Frino to whip up the town into a frenzy about it. 
The police arrest Potter, who had been framed by Burnside, as he's escorted to the police station. There's an odd moment between Jack and Beezer that seems out of place with the fact that when we'd left off with them, they seem buddy-buddy. Here, Jack introduces himself again, which is odd, kind of like their previous interaction had never happened. Anyway, tension rises with the uncertainty of what the Thunder Five will do when Potter is brought in or what the oncoming mob, led by the Gorg-influenced Tansy Frino, will do. It's unrelenting. Jack diffuses the situation by plucking Gorg's feather from Tansy, and just as things have calmed down, the blood-sucking Wendell Green whips the crowd into a frenzy. And just when we think that it's going to get bad, he's stopped by the ineffectual policeman who had sprung the leak that had caused the mad panic earlier that day. Jack confers with Potter, the scapegoat who reveals that he had known a man building a house in French Landing that was rumored to be haunted during the construction of it. This, of course, is the Black House, and the man, of course, is Charles Burnside. We'll spend more time with the Black House later, but the authors do what they can to, sook, to sink their hooks into us for the time being. On page 348... One guy told me the sun never shone there, even when it shone, Potter says abruptly. He said the house was a little way off the road in a clearing, and it should have gotten sun at least five hours a day in the summer, but somehow it, it didn't. He said that the guys lost their shadows, just like in a fairy tale, and they didn't like it. And sometimes they heard a dog growling in the woods. It sounded like a big one, a mean one, but they never saw it. You know how it is, I imagine. Stories get started. And they just kind of feed on themselves. Then, when the Stadies come to interrogate the clearly innocent prisoner, Jack summons the Prince Jason aspect of his personality. And they write, Troopers, Jack says. He doesn't speak loudly or angrily, but they both turn. Abuse that prisoner one more time in my sight. I'll be on the phone to the Madison Shoefly Pies the minute you leave, and believe me, troopers, they will listen to me. Your attitude is arrogant, coercive, and counterproductive to the resolution of this case. Your interdepartmental cooperation skills are non-existent. Your demeanor is unprofessional and reflects badly upon the state of Wisconsin. You will either behave yourselves, or I guarantee you that by next Friday you will be looking for security jobs. Although his voice remains even throughout, black and brown seem to shrink as he speaks. By the time he finishes, they look like a pair of chastened children. Dale is gazing at Jack with awe. Only Potter seems to be unaffected. He's gazing down at his cuffed hands with eyes that could be a thousand miles away. Then, later, um, Bernsey's dream begins to reveal the larger picture, and he name-drops Mr. Munchen. In his bed, at Maxim's, I'm sorry, at Maxton's, Charles Burnside is enjoying dreams, not precisely his, for they emanate from another being, from elsewhere, and depict a world he has never seen on his own. Ragged, enslaved children plod on their bleeding footsies, past leaping flames, turning giant wheels that turn yet larger wheels, oh ho, aha, that power of the beautiful engines of destruction mounting and mounting to the black and red sky, the big combination. An acrid stink of molten metal and something truly vile, something like dragon urine, perfumes the air, as does the leaden stench of despair. 
Lizard demons with thick, flickering tails whip the children along. A din of clattering and banging, of crashing, and enormous thuds punish the ears. These are the dreams of Bernie's dearest friend and loving master, Mr. Munchen, a being of endless and perverse delight. When Jack thinks of the things that Tansy Freno had mentioned about Gorg, Jack begins to understand that there are worlds at play here besides the territories and Earth. With descriptions of a great building on fire, with everything burning, Jack knows that such a thoroughly, thoroughly evil place cannot be in the territories. Jack meets with the Thunder Five, whose member, Mouse, recounts a dread-filled time where he encountered the Black House itself. The Thunder Five then go to find it, and when they do find it and decide to engage, all hell breaks loose right away. Mouse is attacked by his dead girlfriend that has died of cancer after having come upon the Black House. One by one, the Thunder Five are beset by the thick air and the poisonous molecules that pervade the air around the Black House. Mouse is attacked by a giant black dog that they finally manage to push back into the woods, and they escape but not before the authors point out that there is something in the bite that is poisoning Mouse's leg. It's important for the Thunder Five to be the ones to try to get to the Black House first, because they are so burly and so tough, the fact that they've been dismantled so easily shows the unrelenting power of the that radiates from this place. Jack realizes that he has to visit Judy in the hospital and understands that this all comes down to twinners, and the authors tease the events yet to come by writing whatever opens on Ward D today is going to be a world-altering event. Again, Wendell Green inserts himself to do nothing but cause trouble, and though he's a minor character, he is a memorable one. The reunion between Jack and Judy speaks of twinners and other lives as they feel as though they've known each other, or at least act that way, because it's destiny, or Ka, that Jack is to be with Judy's twinner, Sophie. And when they flip, Jack meets the love of his life for the first time. It's a sweet scene, with both characters head over heels for each other, having difficulty speaking, and during the conversation, Sophie addresses the pavilion they stand within, stating that it was a hospital, one of which one of what used to be many that had populated the territories on world and midworld. This is the first name drop to the specific geography of the Dark Tower series, because Jack had been wondering if he was actually in the territories at all and starts to point towards the idea that he's actually flipped into the world of Roland the Gunslinger. Just to confirm that they are indeed in Midworld, Sophie pretty much guarantees that we are smack dab in Eluria, as she mentions the Little Sisters, who are the villains of a Dark Tower short story, The Little Sisters of Eluria, soon to be published to the masses in 2002's collection of short stories, Everything's Eventual. We then cut to outside of the hospital where we realize that Wendell Green has been dragged through the flip to the other world and Wendell Green meets our old friend Parkus who has been repurposed here to fit into the larger Dark Tower mythology. In the pages of the Talisman, Parkus had been a royal guard for Laura de Laresian. Here he strolls into the narrative seemingly different because for all intents and purposes, it is a different Parkus but still Parkus at the same time. This conflict should not come as a surprise because he is walking with a two-headed parrot on his shoulder, one embodying the sacred and the other profane. 
He is no longer a royal guard, but a gunslinger, which he clearly had not been in the pages of the Talisman. And when Jack says that he looks older, Parkus told him that his age changes under different circumstances. So what this means to me is that Parkus never was a royal guard, and he isn't a gunslinger at all. He isn't really a character within the worlds of these other characters. He's more along the lines of a character who knows he's a fictional character and adopts a different appearance to fit whatever story is being told. This should come as a shock due to the fact that he's already appeared in more than one place. This should not come as a fact, I'm sorry. This should not come as a shock due to the fact that he had already appeared in more than one place in the pages of the Talisman, showing that the character could operate outside of the twinner rules that had been established. He's a character that operates according to his own rules. Jack even thinks, you have to stop thinking him of Speedy. That's not who he is or ever was. That was just a character he played. Someone who could both soothe and charm a scared kid on the run with his mother. And Parkus does admit to Sophie that he is not a gunslinger. But he's still carrying a gunslinger's pistol. He's using midworld terminology and phrases as he carries himself with the power and mystique that we had come to expect from Roland. Parkus, the gunslinger but not gunslinger, reveals to Jack that there are many more worlds than just Earth and the territories, and the killer that he is hunting is not the bigger fish. The killer is merely a vessel for a demonic spirit in service of a greater evil, the Ram Abala, the Crimson King. Parkus fills the reader with the ever-growing mythology of the Dark Tower, which I'll touch upon in my bonus episode when I discuss the Crimson King, and King and Straub give an in-narrative explanation for King's entire career. In the Age of Poisoned Thought, which is a time period in which we find ourselves, nature has begun producing more and more individuals with abilities. Though never named, these characters would include Carrie White, Dana from the Langoliers, Danny Torrance, and others. It's here where the characters confirm for us the background that was established first in the Wastelands and most recently in Low Men in Yellow Coats, and that's the breaking of the beams. Only look at your own world if you want to see the ongoing disin- disintegration. Of the six beams, only one still holds true. Two others still generate some holding power. The other three are dead. One of these went out a thousand years ago in the ordinary course of things. The others, killed by the breakers, all in two centuries or less. And in case you weren't sure what they were talking about, Parkus and Sophie start talking about our favorite gunslinger, Roland of Gilead, and how he has formed a new quartet, training new gunslingers to combat the evil forces of the Crimson King. Later, Jack meets with Mouse in a disgusting scene in which Mouse is rotting from living black goo that was transmitted through the dog's bite by the black house. It tries to um, kill him before he can give Jack the location of the black house. Now, this is a squirmy, gooey, disgusting scene, but it is so much a lot of fun. Mouse imparts an incantation that when Jack speaks sends vibrations through the multiverse and gives Henry the strength to face the fisherman who has come for him. 
This, by the way, is a fantastic scene. Henry, who I haven't really talked about, is basically Daredevil as a disc jockey and prepares for the moment where can, he, he can spring his attack on the fisherman. He manages to injure Burnside before being violently attacked with hedge clippers. As he hides in the dark, he hears two voices coming from Bernie in an argument. The guttural Germanic voice is the voice of Mr. Munchen, and the accent is a nice touch. Not that the villain is voiced by a German, but the accent is so foreign that the closest approximation is German. Henry makes it back to the studio where he records a message for Jack before passing away. Charlie then thinks of Mr. Munchen, and we get a great description of the character. Mr. Munchen wants to get back to Black House. Mr. Munchen comes from someplace incredibly distant from French Landing, and certain parts of the Black House, which they built together, feel like the world of his home, the deepest parts, which Charles Burnside seldom visits, and which make him feel hypnotized, weak with longing, and sick to his stomach when he does. When he tries to picture the world that gave birth to Mr. Munchen, he envisions a dark, craggy landscape littered with skulls. On the bare slopes and peaks stands houses like castles that change size or vanish when you blink. From the flickering defiles comes an industry cacophony mingled with the cries of tortured children. So then Burnside goes on a murder spree, and Jack prepares to enter the Black House. Part 4, Black House and Beyond. Now that we are in our final stretch, King and Straub are ready to enter the titual Black House. And they know that they have to impress upon us the complete horror of the building. They've already begun this with the horror that befell the Thunder Five as they approached. And now we get to see the inside once Charles Burnside has entered it. Let us pass through rooms and nooks and corridors and crannies, safe in the knowledge that we can return to the outside world, the sane anti-slippage world, anytime we want. And yet we are still uneasy as we pass down flights of stairs that seem all but endless and along corridors that dwindle to a point in the distance. We hear an eternal low humming and the faint clash of weird machinery. We hear the idiot whistle of a constant wind either outside or on the floors above and below us. Sometimes we hear a faint houndly barking that is undoubtedly the Abala's devil dog the one that did for poor old mouse. Sometimes we hear the sardonic caw of a crow and understand that Gorg is here too, somewhere. We pass through rooms of ruin and rooms that are still furnished with a pale and rotten grandeur. Many of these are surely bigger than the whole house in which they hide, and eventually we come to a humble sitting room furnished with an elderly horsehair sofa and chairs of fading red velvet. There is the smell of noisome cooking in the air. Somewhere close by is a kitchen we must never visit, not, that is, if we ever wish to sleep without nightmares again. The electrical fixtures in here are at least 70 years old. How can that be, we ask, if Black House was built in the 1970s? The answer is simple. Much of Black House, most of Black House, has been here much longer. 
The draperies in this room are heavy and faded. Except for the yellowed news clippings that have been taped to the ugly green wallpaper, it is a room that would not be out of place on the ground floor of the Nelson Hotel. It's a place that is simultaneously sinister and oddly banal, a fitting mirror for the imagination of the old monster who has gone to earth here, who lies sleeping on the horsehair sofa with the front of his shirt turning a sinister red. Black House is not his, although in his pathological grandiosity he believes differently, and Mr. Munchen has not disabused him of this belief. This one room, however, is... And this is here where we first meet Mr. Munchen, who appears before Charles Burnside. He's a grotesque figure with a single eye, long, sharp teeth, and a face that's so long it, it obscures his evening coat-clad body. It is such a weird, well-described, anatomically impossible creature that feels very much like a boogeyman. Munchen orders Burnside to bring Ty to a station, and we get a small tour of the Black House, of the long spiraling staircase which descends and empties into a room with a ceiling window of gray skies and dead trees outside. Because he's a powerful breaker, they have to place a cap on his head that'll block his abilities, a cap that we will see in the concluding pages of The Dark Tower. They travel through the blasted world, strangely enough, on a golf cart from our world, down the previously mentioned Conger Road. Nightmares lying either side with a rock wall that is made of skulls. It's something out of a dark fairy tale and wonderfully described. On the way through Conger Road, we catch a glimpse of the impossible big machine, a skyscraper cobbled together with various machines, cables all being run by screaming children. They arrive to a shack, and as Burnside appears to shackle Tyler, Tyler makes his move, and in a disgusting but glorious moment of victory, he reaches into the stab wound caused by Henry and starts to pull out the guts that are within. Again, it's disgusting, but after what we've seen from this monster, it's the least of what he deserves. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Jack and the Sawyer gang make their way to Black House. Jack notices Gorg watching them and manages to shoot it without noticing. Now, I wish that Gorg had put up more of a fight. I don't know, mutating into a monster crow? Or even trash-talking them as it simply swooped around and pecked out a couple eyes? But anyway, that's all we get for Gorg. Jack and the gang make it to the Black House, which is locked, but not for Jack. There's a tender but really cheesy, if you think about it for a moment, when a horde of bees come flying to them to protect Jack. A swarm of bees sent by the ghost or spirit of Lily Kavanaugh, queen of the bees. Yeah, it's cheesy, but it's also very powerful. While in the Black House, they discover that it is a nearly infinite interior with crisscrossing staircases. Jack utters the incantation of Diumba, and one of the bees leads the way. And the authors show just how crazy Black House really is. The queen bee leads them, and the other bees follow in a swarm that discolors the air with vastness, with its vastness, and shivers through the rooms that have been silent for centuries. 
For surely we understand, intuitively if not logically, that Black House existed long before Bernie built its most recent node in French Landing. At one point, the quartet descends a staircase of green glass. In the abyss below the steps, they see circling birds like vultures with the white, screaming faces of lost babies. In a long, narrow room like a Pullman car, living cartoons, two rabbits, a fox, and a stone-looking frog wearing white gloves sit around a table catching and eating what appear to be fleas. They are cartoons, 1940s-era black-and-white cartoons, and it hurts Jack's eyes to look at them because they are also real. The rabbit tips him a knowing wink as the Sawyer gang goes by, and in the eye that doesn't close, Jack sees flat murder. There is an empty salon filled with voices shouting in some foreign language that sounds like French but isn't. There is a room filled with vomitous green jungle and lit by a sizzling tropical sun. Hanging from one of the trees is a vast cocoon that appears to hold a baby dragon still wrapped in its own wings. That can't be a dragon, Doc Amberson says in a weirdly reasonable voice. They either come from eggs or the teeth of other dragons, maybe both. They walk down a long corridor that slowly rounds itself off, becomes a tunnel, and then drops them down a long and greasy slide as crazy percussions beat from unseen speakers. To Jack, it sounds like Cozy Cold or maybe Gene Krupa. The sides fall away, and for a moment, they are sliding over a chasm that literally seems to have no bottom. Steer with your hands and feet, Beezer shouts. If you don't want to go over the side, steer! They are finally spilled off in what Dale calls the dirt room. They struggle over vast piles of filth-smelling earth under a rusty tin ceiling festooned with bare light bulbs. Platoons of tiny, greenish-white spiders school back and forth like fish. By the time they reach the far side, they're all panting and out of breath, their shoes muddy, their clothes filthy. There are three doors here. Their leader is buzzing, and doing Immelman turns in front of the one in the middle. No way, Dale says. I want to trade for what's behind the curtain. Jack tells him he's got a future in stand-up comedy, no doubt about it, and then opens the door the bee has chosen for them. Behind it is a huge automated laundry, which Beater immediately dubs the Hall of Cleanliness. Bunched together, they follow the bee down a humid corridor lined with sudsing washers and humming, shuddering dryers. The air smells like baked bread. The washers, each with a single glaring porthole eye, are stacked up to a height of 50 feet or more. Above them, in an ocean of dusty air, pigeons flock in restless currents. Every now and then they pass a pile of bones or some other sign that human beings came or were brought this way. In a hallway, they find a scooter overgrown with cobwebs. Farther on, a pair of girls in line skates thick with dust. In a vast library room, the word laugh has been formed with human bones on a mahogany table. In a richly appointed, if obviously neglected, parlor through which the bee leads them in a no-nonsense straight line, Dale and Doc observe the art on one of the walls appears to consist of human faces that have been cut off, cured, and then stretched on squares of wood. Huge, bewildered eyes have been painted into the empty sockets. 
Dale thinks he recognizes at least one of the faces, Milton Wanderley, a school teacher who dropped out of sight three or four years back. Everyone assumed that Don Wanderley's kid brother had simply left town. Well, Dale thinks, he left all right. Halfway down a stone-throated corridor lined with cells, the bee darts into a squalid little chamber and circles above a ragged futon. At first, none of them speak. They don't need to. Ty was here, and not that long ago. They can almost smell him, his fear. And then Beezer turns to Jack. The blue eyes above the lush, the lush red-brown beard are narrowed in fury. The imagery just continues. Um, I mean, and the imagery in this final section, our first glimpse of N-World, by the way, it's out of control. The shed in which Ty kills Burnside, for instance. It's just a shed set against a backdrop of a gray sky and a giant cobbled skyscraper of pain. The twisted, surreal Conger Road. It's very rich in a very disturbing way. Though we never get the version of the thunderclap as promised to us in Wizarding Glass, we definitely get the equivalent right here. Malshan carries Ty from the shack and immediately encounters Jack and company. He's immediately concerned by the glowing bat in Jack's hands, a bat, he realizes, that is glowing with the same power of the talisman which had once been held by a boy, and then realizes that this man is that boy. It's also here when we get another term from the talisman, the globe of forever. The showdown between Malshin and the gang is short, but it's not the end. Jack demands that Tyler put an end to the big combination, which he does, demonstrating how powerful of a breaker he really is. Jack, his quartet, Tyler, and the children form the from the big combination return to Earth, and the authors tell the reader that this can be the end if they want. They point out that the true end won't be enjoyable. As the gang takes their steps for the press conference, the authors tease Jack's death, discussing his last moments on Earth. And this is a shocking moment, and it's hard to read. Kill Jack? They're going to kill Jack? Then Wanda Kinderling, wife of the man that Jack put away on the case that had brought him to French Landing in the first place, shoots Jack repeatedly in the chest and the throat. It's a horrible tease, and there's no way of knowing whether or not they're going to kill Jack. And despite the chaos and the certainty of Jack's death here, there is hope after all. Speedy was there. Speedy had taken him and flipped with him, glowing all the while with the power of the white. Which brings us to the final chapter. Once upon a time in the territories. And immediately they let us know that we can breathe. Jack awakens in the great pavilion he'd once seen Laura de la Ressian in the talisman. And in a wonderful mirror image that brings it back to the original book, he becomes his mother's twinner, dying while those around him try to save him. And yes, he opens his eyes, but not before the, author, the authors tease the new rules that will restrict Jack if he has any further adventures. He'll die if he spends too long in his original world, and more importantly, hit at a gr sorry, and more importantly, hint at a greater role to play in the Dark Tower, which, spoiler alert, never happens. But I'll get to that in the bonus edition. 
Okay, guys, before I get um, to the uh, Stephen Kingisms or the Easter eggs, I want to talk about twinning. Though the concept of twinning doesn't play as large a part in the plot as it did in the Talisman, it doesn't mean that Straub and King don't weave it into their story, which they do quite well. First, they introduce us to our invisible narrators. Not one, but two narrators. Incorporeal spirits who usher us into the many rooms of French, French Landing. We immediately meet Charles Burnside, whose name is a, really an alias for his real name, Carl Beerstone. So with this, we have a man with two identities. On top of that, Burnside is the continuation of the efforts of Albert Fish, the original fisherman. Furthermore, the manager of the elder care facility is seen having an affair with his secretary, which seems like a useless detail until you realize it as the man is living a double life. When we first meet Judy, not through the prism of Fred's memories, but actually meet her, she's losing her mind, which is a form of sickness which allows her to function as a mirror image to Jack's mother, Lily Kavanaugh, who was dying in the pages of The Talisman. Furthermore, Judy's maiden name is DeLois, similar name to Laura DeLoisian, Lily's twinner. It's fitting, as Judy's twinner Sophie was Laura's successor to the throne of the territories. Henry Layden's multiple DJ personalities speak of twinning, and while we're on the subject of Henry, he's filling in the role previously occupied by Speedy, that of the older mentor to Jack who pushed him to heroism. Speedy pushed Jack to take his first steps into the territories, and Henry pushes Jack to investigate the French landing child murders. Henry's wisdom and almost preternatural ability to see what others can't invokes Speedy to the point where the reader should constantly wonder if he somehow is Speedy, much in the way that Charles Burnside is really Charles Bernstein. Dale Gilbertson embraces the thought that his parents' house was now the co-mingling of his world and Jack's, embodying embodied by the paintings that Jack hangs throughout the, horse, uh, the house of landscapes that seem of a different world, another example of twinning. And the Black House itself is not only a doorway to another world, where its dark reflection stands like a nightmare, but is also a twinner of sorts to the Black Hotel from the Talisman. Okay, guys, let's talk about some of our characters. And so who are we going to start with? Of course, we're going to talk about Jack. It's important to know that we meet Jack through the eyes of another character. Remember in The Talisman, Jack was our entry point into that world. Here, he's mythologized by Dale Gilbertson, the small town cop in over his head who has to call back to action the super detective of Jack Sawyer. I've already read his introductory passage earlier in the episode, so I don't have to do it again, but just think about it one more time. It's one of those moments that allows the writers and the readers to simultaneously celebrate a character together. I've heard a lot of chatter online where people state that they don't like Black House. And I suppose if you're looking for the cross-country adventures of the talisman, then yeah, you're going to be disappointed. But because King and Straub give us the exact opposite, I really appreciate what they give us. It would have been easy to duplicate the original story beat by bit, beat by beat. Let's give Jack another reason to go back to the territories. He even has another wolf. But they've told that story. They weren't interested in telling it again. That's why they must have thought it was important to stress how much Jack wanted to move to French Landing. Think about that poignancy. The boy we'd known as Traveling Jack had finally settled down 
So rather than a sprawling adventure across the United States about a child saving an adult, it's a thriller in a small town about an adult saving a child. Though he might not be traveling, it doesn't mean that traveling Jack has ceased to be. King and Straub follow that through line to where it would have taken him throughout the years. And that spirit of Jack is within our Jack, which means that if you live the life of a traveler, you're going to feel lonely, which Jack is. Lonely, but with authority. He has that balance that many great heroes have. A warm strength that draws you in, but an aloofness that fills you with questions as seen on page 79. Looking at him as he frowns at a vacant section of air well above the shiny bowl, we observe that the beautiful 12-year-old boy last seen in a fourth-floor room of a deserted New Hampshire hotel has aged into a man whose good looks contribute only the smallest portion to what makes him interesting. For that Jack Sawyer is interesting declares itself instantly, even when troubled to distraction by some private concern, some enigma, we might as well say in the face of that contemplative frown, Jack Sawyer cannot help but radiate persuasive authority. Just by looking at him, you know that he is one of those persons to whom others turn when they feel stumped, threatened, or thwarted by circumstance. Intelligence, resolve, and dependability has shaped the cast of his features so deeply that their attractiveness is irrelevant to their meaning. This man never pauses to admire himself in mirrors. Vanity plays no part in his character. It makes perfect sense that he should have been a rising star in the Los Angeles Police Department, that his file bulged with com commendations, and that he had been selected for several FBI-sponsored programs and training courses designed to aid the progress of rising stars. A number of Jack's colleagues and superiors had privately concluded that he would become the police commissioner of a city like San Diego or Seattle around the time he turned 40 and 10 to 15 years later, if it all went well, step up to San Francisco or New York. More strikingly, Jack's age seems no more relevant than his attractiveness. He has the air of having passed through lifetimes before this one, of having gone places and seen things beyond the scope of most other people. No wonder Dale Gilbertson admires him. No wonder Dale yearns for Jack's assistance. In his place, we would want it, too, but our luck would be no better than his. This man has retired. He is out of the game. Sorry, damn shame and all that, but a man's got to whisk eggs when he's got to have omelets, as John Wayne said to Dean Martin in Rio Bravo. What we have here is a spectacularly lonely man. Loneliness has been Jack Sawyer's familiar for so long that he takes it for granted. But what you can't fix eventually turns into wallpaper, all right? Plenty of things, such as cerebral palsy and Lou Gehrig's disease, to name but two, are worse than loneliness. Loneliness is just part of the problem, that's all. Even Dale notices this aspect of his friend's character, and despite his many virtues, our chief of police cannot be described as a particularly psychological human being. So basically, even though he's aged, Jack is still the Jack that we knew him to be in 1981. He's brave. And he still has prones, and he's still prone to bouts of anger. When he's angry, I wouldn't say he's like the Hulk, but I'd watch out. 
Just remember what happened to everyone that stood in his way or crossed him during his adventure the first time around when he eventually got his hands on the talisman. In that moment, Jack became a vengeful god, and everyone that contributed to his pain along the way suffered for it. That anger manifests itself after he finds the sneaker left behind from the fisherman as a taunt to lure Jack back to the territories, and he thinks, I'd like to kill the man or the thing that did this, string him up alive and screaming while he filled his pants, send him out in the stink of his own dirt. Then later, after the disastrous crime scene debacle, when he finds out that Wendell Green had caused the massive distraction so that he could take pictures of Irma Frino's body, Jack is filled with red mist. It's a moment where the safety of Wendell Green is highly doubtful. Later, in the hospital, when Jack flips over into Midworld to speak with Sophie and Parkus, he returns to find a young orderly abusing an elderly patient. This causes Jack to think of Sunlight Gardener's home, and it makes him think of Wolf. And the orderly is lucky that Jack doesn't do any worse than pop him on the side of the head. And his royalty is fully on display. He has a dream in which he's a knight wielding a blade, which will later be used as a baseball bat on Conger Road. Melshin is so afraid, even thinks that he's like a gunslinger. Let's talk about Judy. We first meet Judy through the filter of her husband Fred's memories, and the authors are wise to do this. It allows Judy to be introduced to the reader with a mystique that might not have been there if we had just met her ourselves. It gives her an otherworldliness. There's an aura about this character. She's fascinating to read about. First, Fred worries that something's wrong with her, then knows that she can appear and disappear in different places, and the memory of how she'd stepped in between the drivers of a car accident to defuse a situation shows that she is a strong character. Knowing what we know about her makes sense as the character's action demonstrates a regality that speaks to her twinner's position in another world. And speaking of Judy and Sophie, um, I just kept thinking the entire time that if this was a movie, it would be great if the two characters, if Judy was played by um, Bryce Dallas Howard and uh, Sophie was played by Jessica Chastain, as they are, everyone's convinced that they're the same person. I think that that would be, I, you know, just if it was just cast with people that, that look like each other, I think that that would be fun. Okay, guys, now I'm still talking about the characters here, but I want to talk about the narration. I just want to go on record proclaiming how much I love the narrative choice made by Straub and King for this novel. Like I said in the review of The Talisman, I would need to read more of Peter Straub to extricate who wrote what, but my gut tells me that the narrative technique they adopt here of the spirit-like narrators was a stylistic choice brought to us by Peter Straub. The slow, dread-filled beginning, filled with incredible details and imagery, places firmly in the world through sheer power of description. For some readers, it might be too much. And I guess I get it. I mean, not enough is happening, not in terms of plot anyway. But while they don't necessarily focus on plot, they focus on tone, which can be more important as it is here. They know that they need to create a sense of the town and the life within the town, specifically now that the town is gripped in fear of the child killer, the fisherman. The narrative choice supports the conflict of the novel, that Jack must overcome the forces of the Crimson King in order to stop the tower from falling. When we first meet our narrators, they are in the sky, 
above French landings. So when we meet them, they're at an elevated height, perhaps on a different floor of the Dark Tower itself. And that's what makes this novel so fun. It's not just a story being told by King and Straub. It's a story being told by two beings who operate on a higher level of the Dark Tower, who can see into the past and into the future, and have chosen to bring us along on this particular moment in time to watch Jack Sawyer combat the forces of the Abala in his attempts to bring out universal ruin. The narrators have character. And though we aren't given distinct delineations as to who is speaking when, it's clear that each narrator is a little bit different from one another. Here's the voice of one of our narrators, just after they've shown us the body of Irma Frinu. We are not here to weep, not like Ed anyhow, in horrified shame and disbelief. A tremendous mystery has inhabited this hovel, and its effects and traces hover everywhere about us. We have come to observe, register, and record the impressions, the after-images, left in the comet trail of the mystery. It speaks from their details, therefore it lingers in its own wake, therefore it surrounds us. A deep, deep gravity flows outward from this scene, and this gravity humbles us. Humility is our best, most accurate first response. Without it, we would miss the point, the great mystery would escape us, and we would go on deaf and blind, ignorant as pigs. Let us not go on like pigs. We must honor this scene. The flies, the dog worrying the severed foot, the poor, pale body of Irma Frino, the magnitude of what befell Irma Frino, by acknowledging our littleness. In comparison, we are no more than vapors. And here's the voice of the other narrator, who has had enough of listening to Charles Burnside. Let's blow this pop stand, okay? The first narrator is well-spoken, introspective, thoughtful, and very precise with wording. While the other narrator is more re reactionary-based, more informal in his or her language. I would say that it's also this narrator that refers to Burnside as Bernie as I can't see the contemplative voice uttering that nickname. The more deliberate voice narrator then devotes a paragraph to the contrasting beauty of a bee that flies into the murder scene of Irma Frinu, while the other one reminds us of more base and foul aspects to this story, using baser language as seen in the following sentence. But at least we can visit where no one shits the bed or bleeds on the floor, at least not yet. So if I were to wager a guess, I would say that Peter Straub is the voice of the more lyrical narrator, and King is the voice of the more everyman narrator. If this is the case, then it's easy to spot when one passes the baton to one another. Um, now, you'll know that from 90-something episodes of this podcast, King loves to recreate the sensation of the everyday, so he fills it with euphemisms, catchphrases, and little supports that ground us in the everyday. So from a syntactical standpoint, he loves his parentheticals. When you spot a parenthetical at work, chances are it's probably Stephen King. But aside from that, what do we learn about our narrators? 
They're not omniscient for one, not entirely. They don't have x-ray vision. They can't pass through solid objects. They have to fly through open windows, keyholes, cracks, and under door frames. They fly on wings and perch on kitchen counters. Because Stephen King, the, the Stephen King narrator, tells us there's enough space on the counter, it suggests that they take up room so they aren't intangible. And I'm glad that we never know who or what they are. I like the mystery um, of the fact that they're just spirits guiding us through this particular tale. And it's a, um, it's a storytelling technique that I'm, I'm glad that they adopted for this particular novel. Okay, guys. Um, so I just want to talk before I get into my uh, Stephen Kingisms and Easter eggs, the final thoughts. So I loved it. I loved this book when I first read it. I loved it the second time I read it. And even on the third go around, still love it. But I thought about it more and more. And I thought about what we liked the first time around in, in The Talisman. The adventure, the discovery each time that Jack flipped. The joy and terror of being in another world. The sprawling landscape. Almost none of that is present within the Black House. On one hand, I like how King and Straub take our character and build a completely different genre around him. The Talisman was a fantasy adventure. This is a murder mystery deeply rooted in the horror genre. The Talisman took the everyday and brought it to a fantasy world. In Black House, the fantasy world invades the everyday. The Talisman used two Americas as the setting. The Black House focuses on one small, Wisconsin town. So I get people who picked this up expecting something completely different. In fact, if the two of them just changed Jack and Parkus's names and made just a few superficial edits, this could be a completely standalone story. A retired LA cop has to stop a demonic entity from another world. But they chose this to be the next story in the life of Jack Sawyer. So anyone that wanted another sprawling adventure, I get why you're disappointed. But still, I love it. I love this story, guys. And there was rumor last year that they were going to start working on a third one. What that third one would entail, I don't know. You know, it's been, this was published in, in the early 2000s. So Jack is over 10 years older now. Or not over 10 years older, but he's about 10 years older. He's been in the territories with Sophie. Does he have a child? Is it time for his child? to go wandering, child of the territories. So it would be an inversion of the first book with Jack of the Americas flipping over into the territories. This would be Jack's child in the territories flipping over into America. So, I mean, that's one possible uh, story that, that they can go. And I would put money on it being something like that. All right, guys, time for the Stephen Kingisms. I want to finish up soon because we are now at one hour and 36 minutes. So Stephen Kingisms. The first is the evil house, and this is something that we have seen as far back as Salem's Lot with the Marston House. We've seen it with the Marston House. We've seen it with the Overlook. We've seen it with the house on Nybold Street. We saw it in the Dutch Hill House and the Black Hotel and the Talisman, and here we have the Black House itself. Two, child murders. We've seen this most famously in the pages of uh, It with um, Pennywise the Dancing Clown killing the children uh, in Derry, Maine. 
Number three is the Nightmare and Dream. Fred Marshall has a dream where he's in a fishing boat and has reeled in his son. Jack has a dream where he's back in New Hampshire at the amusement park. So in every Stephen King story, there is some sort of dream or prophetic nightmare. Number four, we have Ominous Fog rolling in, well described as he did describe it in The Mist. Number five is a two-headed parrot. Parkas has a two-headed parrot just like Flag had from Eyes of the Dragon. Number six is acidic black goo. After the demon dog attacks Mouse, he's infected with a black goop that begins to rot him inside out. That is not unlike the, uh, the oil slick from the short story The Raft found within Skeleton Crew. And number seven is magic opening a haunted locked door. Father Callahan commands the Marston house to open in the name of God, and it cracks open. Jack does the same in the name of Laura de Loresian, and the door to the black house cracks open, cracks and flies open for them. Now we have Easter eggs, guys. Uh, the first of which is a uh, shout-out uh, to Fushing Thief. Early on, King and Strauss write, have you ever seen a furious old wreck in worn-out clothes who pushes an empty shopping cart down deserted streets and rants about a fushing thief? That's a reference to a moment in the talisman. Number two is low men in yellow coats. At one point, Judy has a dream of low men in yellow coats, which is a um, reference to the, um, the short story found within the Hearts in Atlantis uh, collection. Number three is insomnia. Judy has been suffering from insomnia. This has also been occurring the same time she starts to have premonitions that something is going to happen to her son. We know from the novel Insomnia that a short timer, which is what we all are, can be elevated to a higher level of the tower through insomnia, which looks uh, like what happened here. She didn't get as high up on the tower where she could see auras, but she was granted a further view because of it. Number four is Legion. At one point, the fisherman says he's legion, a reference to a Bible story in which Jesus exercises a possessed individual who is plagued by a horde of demonic entities. Throughout his career, King has continually dipped into this well and has had Pennywise, Randall Flagg, and Andre Linoge from Storm of the Century all claim to be legion. Number five is Little Sisters of Eluria. When Jack first meets Sophie, he meets her in a hospital tent uh, from the Little Sisters of Eluria shorts in the short story collection, Everything's Eventual. Sophie even name drops the sisters. Speaking Circle. When Jack flips over into Midworld, he finds a speaking demon's circle, which is something that readers of the Dark Tower series will recognize. Number seven is Ka. Unsurprisingly, because this is a Dark Tower novel, this deals with the wheel and the way of Ka. Number eight, Rose Red. King compares Black House to another haunted house, Rose Red, which I have not reviewed. Number nine is the Mono. In Endworld, along the Conger Road, Munchen goes to retrieve a Mono, just like Patricia and Blaine, two characters both named here. 
Number Ted. Ted is the white, the all-powerful force of Gon that has appeared in time of need to support many of Stephen King's heroes, including Jack in The Pages of the Talisman, Alan Pangborn in The Dark Half, Ralph Roberts in Insomnia, and more. It appears here when Tyler is grabbed a hold of Burnside's guts, giving him strength. And number 11 is Ted Brodigan. Ted Brodigan from Low Men is mentioned here, and the authors give a nod to his many escapes from Devartoy. Okay, guys, uh, that is all that I have right now for Black House, but I am also releasing a bonus edition of of uh, Stephen King cast in which I examine Black House's deeper connections to the Dark Tower series. Um, for those of you who have finished the Dark Tower series and you want to get into some more spoilerific thoughts, so you can just head on over to that episode. And next week, guys, I will be reviewing. What will I be reviewing? What's up next? From a Buick 8. From a Buick 8, Stephen King's other evil collar story. So uh, make sure that you, you stick around for that. And if you haven't done so already, head on over uh, to iTunes to subscribe and leave a review, which will help support the Stephen King cast. And as always, you can write to Stephen King cast at, I'm sorry, you can write here at Stephen King cast at yahoo.com to share your thoughts on Stephen King, on the Black House, on the Tales from the Dark Tower, on any Stephen King book that you want to, because um, I love getting listener email. Okay guys so may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next week where m-o-o-n spells stephen kingcast folks won't find us now because mr satch and mr cross we gone fishing instead of just Oh, yeah.